As damaging as Donald Trump's presidency has been for America's global standing, it is hard to pin down precisely where Trump is taking U.S. foreign policy. George W. Bush preferred preemptive engagement with the world, while Barack Obama focused on containment. Trump, on the other hand, seems more intent on destroying old alliances than creating new ones. Distressed, concerned, frightened, those are the words of growing bipartisan panic after Defense Secretary James Mattis resigned in protest and condemned Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy. What can be said with near unanimity, however, is that the U.S.-led international order, the institutionalized rules and norms that have shaped geopolitics since the end of World War II, is fraying. President Trump has ordered the Pentagon to pull all U.S. troops out of Syria. President Trump tweeted this morning that we should not be surprised by his decision to withdraw some 2,000 U.S. troops from Syria. The president claims that they have defeated ISIS there and other countries need to step up. What will this mean for the U.S. and the world in the post-Trump era? For my guest today, this is more than an academic question. It is a matter of global urgency, and the time to start discussing it is now. Mira Rapp Hooper is a senior fellow at Yale's Paul Tai China Center and a lecturer at the Yale Law School, and Rebecca Friedman Listener is an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. They often write together on U.S. foreign policy, and they have some unique views on what comes after Trump. Hi, Mira. Hello, Rebecca. Thanks for joining me on this episode of PS Editor's Podcast. Great to talk to you, Greg. Hi, Greg. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the phone, and and you're both in New York. I'm in Prague. Um, So I apologize in advance if we step over each other uh, or I misidentify you, uh, but please uh, bear with me and uh, correct me if I get your name wrong. We will. So I want to start with a kind of a big overarching question that boils down to something rather specific. Why does America need a new foreign policy in your estimation? This is Mira. It's an important question, uh, of course. And basically, uh, we believe that the answer is that the world has already shifted considerably, that Trump himself, um, despite all of these heterodox proclivities that we've been talking about, is not the sole protagonist of this incredibly unusual foreign policy moment, but rather is a reflection of a set of forces that predated him and are likely to last long after he leaves office. And what we mean when we argue that is a set of trends, both domestic and international, that are likely to completely reshape both the environment in which American domestic policy is being made, but also the environment in which American foreign policy is being made. On the domestic level, we could look at trends like political polarization or automation and the relationship between government and the tech sector, or our fiscal conditions. And on the international level, we could talk about things like international power shifts, about the future of the international economic order, and about the diffusion of technology. And if we try to project the world that we're likely to be living in, let's say in the mid to late 2020s, I think we'd be hard pressed to argue that that world will look like the same one that we faced in the 1990s. And as a result, the United States is going to need to devise a new set of strategies and marshal tools in different ways to implement those strategies if it is to have a successful foreign policy in this new era. 
And if I could just embellish on that a bit with regards to the Trump question in particular, our argument really is that the world would have changed regardless of who came to occupy the White House um, as a result of the 2016 election. And even if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, many of these long-term trends would nevertheless be operating on American foreign policy and would be shaping both the domestic and international context in which it is made. So although Donald Trump, with his destructive impulses, you know, disintegrating the international order um, more quickly, perhaps, than it would have otherwise disintegrated. The fact is that this is a moment of strategic reckoning that either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump would have faced. Right, right. Okay. So in arguing that the United States needs a new foreign policy, it's it's predicated on, on kind of your thesis that the international order uh, is in desperate need of an overhaul. For seven decades, the international order had liberal tact to the front of it, largely uh, an indication or representation of American leadership in the world. And with America in decline and new powers shifting and, and, and arising, we need some sort of new approach. Does that approach essentially mean scrap the liberal from the, from the international order and start over? That's a great question, Greg, and this is Rebecca speaking now. Um, I think that that is actually an open question in many ways. Precisely as you said, um, after World War II, the United States led in the construction of something that we now refer to as the liberal international order. But of course, it would be ahistorical to posit that it was ever fully liberal, truly international, or entirely orderly. Um, instead, it began uh, really as a Cold War era project where the U.S. was leading its block of countries in creating um, you know, zones of trade, alliances, um, in trying to operate within international institutions. Um, it changed a great deal over time after decolonization and expanded into Asia, into Latin America. It experienced a severe crisis um, of the Bretton Woods system in the 1970s. And it was really only with the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War that the order that the United States led and built during the Cold War came to even be considered truly international and came to have these ambitions of spreading liberalism inexorably across the globe. Of course, we all know about sort of Francis Fukuyama's famous end of history thesis. And there was this moment of acute optimism in the early 1990s um, that liberalism was triumphant, that communism was dead. And and that it would therefore spread. And of course, a key assumption with that argument was the idea that as these autocratic countries or formerly communist countries came to participate in aspects of the U.S.-led order, in particular its institutional elements like the WTO, like the UN, like NATO, like the European Union, um, that the internal composition of those countries would be changed. That you know, in joining the international trading order, China would become you know less like a you know communist state-directed economy. That Russia, um, in joining with um, in joining the WTO in sort of transforming after communism would start to look more like us, would start to look more democratic. Um, and that, I think, is the assumption that's really being challenged right now, where we've seen that this idea that rather than uh, these countries being transformed by their participation in the international order, in fact, their participation is transforming the international order itself. And it seems extremely unlikely at this point that China, which is you know the most important rising power, as Mira just noted, 
noted, um, is going to become a democratic capitalist country that adheres to the same liberal values that we do. So any future vision of order need not necessarily give up on liberalism entirely, but it needs to be more modest in, an ambition, in its ambitions and in its expectations about how far liberalism can reach and the extent to which that can be the dominant ordering principle for all form of international politics. This is Mira just chiming in as well, Greg. Um, I would absolutely associate myself with all of Rebecca's remarks and just note that while we are seeing a substantial challenge from authoritarian competitors who may have different views of what forms of international order should look like, it's important to note that based on fundamentals, it actually looks like the United States will remain the preeminent power in the international system for a few decades to come. It just won't have the unrivaled dominance that we've grown used to since the early 1990s, this period in which we vaunted the liberal international order as sort of the culmination of our post-war order-building project. So the United States will retain substantial agency and ability to shape international outcomes, including international institutions, rules, norms, laws, etc., um, and to work with longstanding allies in doing so. Um, but exactly as Rebecca signaled, it will have to be somewhat modest about what is truly possible with respect to the internal regimes of countries that are increasingly strong and that are increasingly undemocratic in their orientation. This, however, is more of a challenge than it may even sound like because these competitors are already inside the house. We are talking about Russia and China both um, as permanent members of the UN Security Council, of members of every relevant international institution that operates on a global level. Um, so a lot of the conflict or tension over regime type may actually incur, occur inside of international institutions, not just over them. But we'll also see different patterns of behavior um, where actors try to set up new institutions. So in particular, China as a rising power has the greatest capacity to engineer new institutions, norms, and rules, particularly inside of Asia. And that's where we may see conflicts over the liberalism or lack thereof of rules and norms going forward as actors try to negotiate how they should respond to new forms of order that may not have liberalism at their core. I mean, there's another approach as well. I mean, you, you've written that fundamental changes to the international order always follow conflict. Can the international community navigate all of these issues and challenges that we're talking about uh, that arise from the geopolitical shifts without war? Well, that is certainly the question that animates us uh, most vigorously when it comes to the research that we are doing together. Uh, precisely as you said, the most creative moments of order building have often come in the wake of great destruction, usually major world wars. Um, and this has been true really across history. Uh, precisely as we've been talking about, the liberal international order that emerged after World War II emerged because the world had just been upended through this major conflict, um, because the order that had been attempted after World War I had in many ways failed, and so the liberal international order after World War II was an attempt to rectify the failures of the post-World War I order, the League of Nations, and so on. 
Um, it's not entirely clear whether orders can change in fundamental ways in the absence of violent conflict, but it's very important that we try. And of course, it's even more important to note that this current transition that we're talking about is quite unique from those that have preceded it, because this is the first one in which we have a rising power that is beginning to challenge and establish power and is doing so in a context in which both countries have nuclear weapons. So this idea that there could even be a moment of creative destruction from which the world could then recover um, seems no longer to be true in a nuclear age, not to mention the dynamics of sort of mutually assured economic destruction that also somewhat characterize the U.S.-China relationship. And so it's vitally important that we try to anticipate these problems and try to seek out new forms of order and new designs that can foreclose the possibility that um, we'll reach a point where their only option is to sort of rebalance the international order through violent conflict. I'll also, this is Mira just chiming in on Rebecca's uh, great comments as well. I'll also note that in addition to um, the nuclear balance, which Rebecca mentioned as a a mitigating factor on great power conflict, uh, economic interdependence, is the fact that we have never seen an era before where international order itself was so dense. Essentially, that since 1945, we've put in place so many rules, norms, and institutions that they actually do, to some extent, have a record of governing great power behavior, even though we know that great powers can also break the rules. So what I mean by that is we see that as China is rising, it is largely seeing an interest in upholding a lot of global institutions while trying to rewrite rules and norms inside of its own region to try to expand its own power and establish some form of regional hegemony in Asia. But what that tells us is that China is actually fairly conscious of what rules are and aren't considered acceptable in the international system and that it's trying to make space for itself in ways that other actors may consider disruptive, but nonetheless probably seeks to avoid war, at least in the short to medium medium term because China wants to continue rising without war itself. In fact, going to war with the United States would be the worst thing that could happen to China in the next 10 or 20 years because it has the possibility of derailing China's rise entirely. Um, So I think that all of these factors that we have pointed to give us more hope that the great powers in the international system will at least recognize the incentives to renegotiate forms of order rather than trying to solve and then renegotiate them on the back end of violent conflict as we so often seen in the past. Right. I would say the only sort of exception to that, in a sense, is the declining power in Russia, where they have been much more forward-leaning and aggressive in seeking to revise the regional order in Europe um, through violent conflict, but always carefully calculated conflicts that do not bring them directly against the United States. So you've seen the Russia-Georgia war in 2008, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Um, These are certainly attempts to revise the order by force in Europe, but also, as Mira was saying with China, studiously avoiding attacks. Attacking NATO allies, for example, where the U.S. would most likely be drawn into the conflict. Right. Okay. So these are some, I and mean, this is a good geopolitical scoping of, of the major challenges, major issues that will be shaping U.S. foreign policy calculations in the years ahead. But now let's dive into some of the domestic ones uh, that you've looked at in your research project the day after Trump. What are the big, major uh, domestic issues that will be shaping U.S. calculations as it relates to shaping U.S. foreign policy in the years ahead in the post-Trump era? 
This is Mira. Um, we have really been focused uh, at present tense on three major trends that we think are likely to be really formative. Uh, these include political polarization, they include uh, domestic fiscal issues, and they also include the relationship between government and technology and the way that that's likely to affect U.S. competitiveness going forward. Um, so I'll take them each in turn briefly. What party you are seems to determine so much much more uh, than you know how you view the world today than um, what gender you are, where you went to school, what church you belong to. Political polarization, as I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with, is a trend that is not at all new in this country. What we mean when we say political polarization is the fact that the two major political parties are increasingly sorting themselves into separate camps with almost no recognizable overlap between them. Uh, no, I don't think there's any question that uh, our parties have become far more monolithic than they were just two generations ago. So while 30 or 25 years ago it was possible to see some moderate Republicans who are more liberal than the most conservative Democrats, the two parties are now neatly sorted into sort of bipolar camps. Um, and this makes it more difficult for them to cooperate on legislation. Um, but concomitant with this party sorting is that we've seen effective sorting amongst the population, meaning that the American people have similarly sorted themselves into partisan camps and are more likely to have deeply unfavorable views of the other party. The number of people identifying themselves as either consistently liberal or consistently conservative has doubled in the last decade. They're less likely to compromise and often decide where to live, who to marry. There are also magnifying effects that we see throughout other socio-political trends that add even further to the sort of volatility of this polarization. And that includes things like media polarization, the basic fact that we're all aware of that there are now so many different ways that people can receive information that they can essentially opt into the information sources that most confirm their pre-existing views as opposed to wrestling with facts or narratives that claim to have some sense of objectivity behind them. So what this potentially means for foreign policy is manifold, but it suggests the fact that foreign policy itself is likely to become increasingly politicized, both in terms of its substance and its process. From a process perspective, we can expect that, as we've seen in this administration, there will be more incentives for any given administration to try to negate the foreign policy achievements of another administration from a different political party. I inherited a mess. That is to say, pull out of international agreements that were concluded by a different presidency um, to reject general orientations towards foreign policy that is seemed to be associated with the other party. Um, and that because foreign policy becomes so much more partisan, the party itself is likely to go along with those instincts. Um, but that also uh, has a really significant effect on the way the United States is viewed in the world. Um, it has a significant signaling effect on the way our allies and adversaries alike are likely to see us going forward because foreign policy was generally a fairly bipartisan camp um, of American politics and policy. If our allies and adversaries expect that every time an administration changes partisan hands, the foreign policies of the previous president 
laws then are likely to be negated, that will change their expectations about how they should react in the international system and what they should expect from us going forward. That is, will be viewed as a much less consistent power on the global stage. And there are some far-reaching ramifications of that. Um, on the fiscal front, um, this is one that I'm sure uh, listeners will also be familiar with. The CBO projects that starting in 2020, the U.S. government will run a trillion dollar deficit again. That means the U.S. will spend a trillion dollars more in a single year than it takes in. There is a domestic fiscal, fiscal crisis which is looming over this country in the early to mid uh, 2020s. And that includes the fact that uh, we are basically going to have a national debt and interest payments on the debt that will outstrip the annual budget for defense and non-defense discretionary spending in the early 2020s. That means that the interest payments on the debt that are going to grow so high so quickly that it will be impossible for us to come up with a solvent budget unless we raise taxes, cut entitlements, and cut discretionary spending all at once. Um, and of course, we've seen both political parties delay any kind of significant agenda that would forestall this looming sort of fiscal sword of Damocles. So it makes it all the more likely that we'll see some kind of budget crisis in the next 10 years that will result in precipitous cuts across the board to foreign policy spending that may not have been fully thought through. Another trend that we're looking at that we think is particularly important um, is the relationship between the U.S. government and Silicon Valley. Of course, technological diffusion and innovation are going to be is going to be a huge global trend that shapes the future of geopolitics. Uh, but a key question about how it's going to affect American competitiveness is the degree to which the U.S. government can harness America's innovative capacity to the degree that it has in the past. Um, we've seen all sorts of signs recently, whether um, from Russia's interference in the 2016 elections and major tech companies' reactions um, to more recent spats between tech companies and the Department of Defense that suggest that the cultures and orientation of the tech industry in the United States are not necessarily exactly aligned with what the U.S. government would like to see from its own technology industry. Of course, countries like China have their own stumbling blocks when it comes to state society relations and the way that they'll harness their own innovative capacity. But insofar as we can expect innovation to be a key determinant of how competitive the United States will be vis-a-vis -vis other major actors like China, the question of how we get this government Silicon Valley relationship right is a really important one. Hmm. Rebecca, let me throw the follow-up uh, to you. You know, all of those issues that Mira just laid out uh, make it sound like the U.S. for the next you know, number of decades, if not much longer, will be dealing with all these domestic issues and have no capacity to deal with you know, aligning U.S. foreign policy to a reshaped international order. Doesn't that essentially lead us with this bipolar or tripolar type uh, scenario in the world where um, U.S. leadership can't recover regardless of who is our next president? Well, Greg, the answer is no. 
uh, I think, or at least not necessarily, because as we noted earlier, the United States remains in a preeminent position for a number of reasons. Uh, the U.S. economy remains very large. The dollar remains dominant and is likely to be dominant for the foreseeable future. U.S. financial institutions are at the center of global commerce. Uh, meanwhile, the United States has quite favorable demographics, particularly as compared to uh, its peers in the West and in Asia, uh, many of whom are suffering demographic decline. Line. And the U.S. military really remains the envy of the world. And for all of its problems, uh, the output of military platforms manufactured in the U.S. are far superior to those that are coming out of other countries. So the United States is going to remain preeminent. And in many ways, the greatest threat to the future of American power is ourselves, for all of the reasons that Mira enumerated. And so if the United States can find a way to move past these problems, a way to address the fiscal situation, a way to mitigate the severity of partisan polarization, a way to harness the domestic innovation base for national security purposes. You know, there are a number of solutions that we could come to that could move us past or sufficiently past those hurdles in order to realize what is a very favorable international situation. But you know, to be frank, it's certainly not assured, and it's possible that the United States will not solve any of those problems. And in fact, the story of American decline will really be one of death by suicide. Um, rather than the kind of um, attack by a rising power or, you know, large, great power war, world war type of scenario that we had been discussing before as the most common fate uh, that befalls uh, declining great powers. This is Mira just chiming in on this question, too. I think the the question that you've raised is precisely why we see this as a moment of strategic reckoning, because all three of the domestic trends that we've pointed to that could potentially make the United States turn inwards and focus on itself as opposed to international order actually could all be ameliorated through smart international strategies that have order building as an object. I think that's exactly right. And I would just add that the foreign policy conversation, I think over you know much of the post-Cold War period, had has been very internationally facing, um, particularly among scholars of international relations. There's this sense that the domestic need not factor in to foreign policy analysis in a major way. And one of the arguments that we're making and one of the great contributions of our research is to show how fundamentally inextricable these domestic challenges and trends are from international strategy. And precisely as Mira said, insofar as strategy is the smart coupling of means and ends, that begins with a serious accounting of the means that will be available to the United States as it seeks to pursue ends that advance the national interest over the coming decade. Yeah, I mean, that point that you've just made, and I think this is where uh, I want to wrap the conversation up, that point is one that future Democratic contenders are making. I mean, Senator Elizabeth Warren just made that case in foreign affairs that U.S. domestic and foreign policy is inseparable. Now, you agree with Warren's point, but will Americans who are famously uninterested in foreign policy and poorly informed about international affairs, how do we make Americans buy the linkage between domestic and foreign policy? Well, I think the historic 
uh, indifference to foreign policy is precisely um, the frame through which we should consider the answer to your question. Uh, when you talk about things like the rise of China, when you talk about agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, when you talk about alliances like NATO or the U.S.-Japan alliance, I think many of those concerns are very far removed from the lived experience of many Americans. Um, and I think we saw that in the 2016 election when even though there were really strong arguments made about the irresponsibility of Donald Trump's character as you know, the commander-in-chief and also um, about his specific foreign policy positions, ultimately the American people, or at least from an electoral college perspective, the American people didn't find those to be disqualifying whether or not they actually agreed with them or not. And so the challenge that 2016 highlighted was precisely what you're saying, that foreign policy feels very removed for many people. And by highlighting its intersection with domestic policy, by highlighting the way in which foreign policy actually matters for the day-to-day -day experiences, for the economic lives of Americans, for the you know, structure of their communities, for their security concerns, all of those things that are much more immediate, I think that's how we really bring foreign policy home. And so it's not just an intellectual exercise in sort of strategy crafting and grand strategy and these sort of abstract notions of international order. I don't think we're ever going to be winning votes uh, for candidates of either party on the basis of arguments about the fate of the liberal international order. But where we will win arguments and win votes is in showing how these foreign policy questions are fundamentally related to domestic policy questions and to individual citizens' concerns. And I actually think that is what is um, politically useful in addition to being quite analytically useful in highlighting the intersection between the domestic and the foreign. This is Mira jumping in once again. Um, indeed, I would just note that in some ways, you know, phrases like the liberal international order are the worst way um, that aspiring politicians uh, can try to appeal to everyday Americans on the basis of foreign policy concerns. That terminology sounds like the domain of the elite. It's incredibly inscrutable. Um, and it's very difficult, as Rebecca was just discussing, for Americans to access on their everyday lived experience. But if we can talk about things in 21st century terms, interests, and objectives, then that makes the marriage of the domestic and the international much more instinctive and complete. Well, I want to thank you both for the sobering and timely analysis of U.S. foreign policy in the Trump slash post-Trump era. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks, Greg. That was Mira Rapp-Hooper, a senior fellow at Yale's Paul Tai China Center and a lecturer at the Yale Law School, and Rebecca Friedman Listener, an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.